electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Karen Feinerman will join us shortly. Apple's big reveals, Tim Cook taking the wraps off a new budget phone. But uh, new colors for the 13, a powerful Mac chip, and exclusive Friday night baseball. Investors sort of yawning, though, at today's event. Gene Munzer standing by to tell us how Apple and tech can get their mojo back. Plus, on about face for McDonald's, last night we told you Mickey D's was keeping the doors open in Russia. Well, today they decided to shut him down. The details and the important symbolic message straight ahead. And the sun shining on solar stocks today. Is it time for Guy and the gang, more so the gang, to get a tan? (laughs) We start off with a wild roller coaster ride for the markets. The S&P rallying sharply midday, climbing more than 1.8% at its highs. The Dow jumped nearly 600 points, but easy come, easy go. Markets bounce all around uh, this afternoon, finally ending the day in the red. So what what happened, Tim? You sort of called it on the on the midday call here. Uh, so let's call this collective because Dan's sitting over here. I think we said it two different ways. Dan said, "Hey, you know, look, um, I would be concerned if this market and this was intraday highs. We have our production call, and and I would be Dan said I'd be concerned if this market finishes uh, lower, lower. And, and as in." down on the day. And I said, I, I would not be surprised if the market finishes down on the day. And it, the, the headlines um, were, were, look, we want the headlines that were part of the drivers to see that turnaround. But uh, you look at the technical damage in the market, you look at what was already going on with commodities. And, you know, any day that equities are rallying and oil's up six or seven percent is not a good day for equities. And, and I think we have, uh, you know, guy talks all the time about the move in the volatility in the Treasury bond market. Five of the last six days, you've had at least a 15 basis point move intraday on the tenure. The dollar continues to strengthen. The commodity complex is, is eroding uh, spending power by the second. We have central banks that, uh, if anything, the urgency has become greater for them to, to work, and yet inflation expectations have been driven higher. And in fact, interest rate expectations have actually come in off of where we were three weeks ago when people thought central banks were going to be more aggressive. On a week when we've got, you know, uh, sorry, sorry, in a month, we're in a month where we've got a Fed meeting and we're about to start to digest some of the interest rate policy. Um, Interest rates and markets are doing the Fed's work for them, and, it, yeah. and it's a fascinating time in history. I mean, what, what were the headlines specifically, do you think, that, that sparked that little midday turnaround? I mean, was it Biden's oil ban, which was largely symbolic? Was it uh, the notion that Ukraine wouldn't seek membership to NATO, which was a Russian sticking point? Yeah, I suspect that. I mean, I, listen, I think everybody wants to see a de-escalation of this, and they want to see, uh, you know, off-ramps for Russia here. And so, you know, the Biden thing, I think, was fairly well telegraphed that we were going to ban that. The U.K. had already come out earlier in the day, um, had said that. And we did see oil stocks and crude, uh, in particular, come off a little bit, which seems like somewhat counterintuitive. Guy has been saying it pretty um, aptly that really will create a near-term difficulty for, um, you know, as far as supply is concerned. As far as my view on the markets when we were talking about it midday, it just felt really squeezy. I was looking at the things that were rallying and the way that they were rallying, and it seemed like a sort of knee-jerk sort of reaction for stuff that was very, very oversold. And I think one of the comments that we all agreed on is that there were certain parts of the market that we are going to be more focused on if we're trying to figure out how the stock market bottoms, especially with all these cross-currents that are going on and all these risk assets. And i got to tell 
tell you guys, listen, I've traded equities for 25 years. All the stuff that we talk about, rates, commodities, FX, that's really complicated stuff. And I'm not here to tell you that I understand all the inner workings of them. And that's why I try to drill down sometimes on the stock market. And one of the things that had me concerned was the underperformance in J.P. Morgan. It was performing worse than all of its peers when the market was at its highs, up one and a half percent or so, the S&P 500. And it was, uh, you know, it was down or excuse me, up less than the market was. And then the other ones that I've been really focused on and we've been talking about on the desk over the last couple of weeks or so is a name like Apple or some of these big mega cap names that have not suffered the way that some of the other groups have. And they were underperforming to me relative to the market. And we've been talking for a while about whether financials are telling us something. And if you take a look at City, for instance, City is down 18 percent over the past month. Karen, what's your takeaway in terms of the message for the overall markets? So I think it's probably, clearly it's a negative, but when I think about why are the banks trading down, obviously we look at the 210 and that spread has condensed a lot, maybe on its way to negative, who knows. Um, But that's, so that's part of it. But I also think that the sort of muscle memory from the contagion in 2008 of credit quality, and even though we think and we are probably pretty isolated from direct Russian exposure to a great extent, maybe Citigroup the most, but still not a very big amount, that we're still so afraid of that, rightfully so, right? We're all interconnected. It's a global market. And so I think that weighs on it. And then, of course, if the economy slows, loan growth doesn't grow, and then credit quality concerns come into play. So all of that together, I think, you know, I'm long the banks, but it makes sense to me. I don't feel like this is crazy. They shouldn't be trading down. I get it. I understand why they're trading down. I don't think it's crazy. But uh, it was a really interesting market today. That brief, not a huge rally that we had made me feel like we are so, so poised to have a gigantic rally. If we could just get a whiff of good news. I think that news about uh, the NATO of them willing to say we don't need to be a part of NATO was actually maybe a little bit old. Maybe it was that they were willing to cede some of the uh, some of the separatists. I don't know, but we are so hungry for any kind of positive news. I bought some spider calls at the end of the day, just feeling like, you know, we're so poised for a giant rally. So here's a question, and, and this will be premature and, 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 you know, knock on wood, I'm not impacting the outcome, and I'm sure I'm not. But, Guy, let's say that there's a, a ceasefire. Tomorrow, what happens to the markets and does that rally? Oh, excuse me. (laughs) What's the lasting impact of the markets there, especially with the Fed ahead of us? Well, I mean, I think the knee jerk to Karen's point, if there were to, you know, if if peace were to break out magically, I think you would see that mind numbing rally. And we talk about all the time. Some of the the strongest rallies are in markets that are headed lower. Um, Those counter those counter move rallies are very violent. And you probably could see one. You saw one today. But, I, you know, today was an interesting day. Karen said it, and, and I'll point out some good things. Russell was higher today. That's a good thing. Yep. I mean, the IWM held in there pretty well. And the VIX, I understand the VIX is elevated. Please don't at me on Twitter. But the VIX actually closed lower on the day, still with a 34 handle. I get it. But you take something away from that as well. Those are not bad things. The bad things are that HYG that Karen pointed out last week and we've been talking about for a while as an indicator closed at a 52-week low. Not particularly good. So to answer your question... To me, this all started over the summer, and then it really started to pick up steam late November when the Fed changed course. And again, you know, we're in markets now, and and Liz Young has talked about it for a while from SoFi. You've gone from markets where people buy sell-offs to markets where people are selling rallies. And you saw that 
um, over and over again today. Yeah. Um, in addition to uh, the small caps, we saw semiconductors rally, bombed out IBB, biotechs were up today. No, there, there, this was, a, a, first of all, coming from a very oversold condition, and, and I, I flag semis whenever I can because I do think they are the chart to follow. At one point intraday, semis were up over 4%. They still closed up over 1.5%, but that chart um, set new lows yesterday, and I think that was some of the technical damage. And I would, quickly back to banks. We've had two days in a row where we've had yields really spike higher. Uh, yes, yield curve is flattening. Uh, many around here, including me, I think Dan has mentioned this. I think it's just a matter of time on the inversion. But, but really, we've wondered uh, what the banks are telling us. And there's no question on a day when banks are down and yields are up, this is concern about the broader economy. It's concern about European banks. Uh, I, I do think the dollar is going to 105 on the Dixie. I do think the last time we had vol this elevated above 30 was 10 years ago, 11 years ago, when there was a lot of pressure on the European banking sector and European sovereign bond yields. That's the environment where you get gold rallying like it is. And I think we're there. Yeah. And I just mentioned this. I mean, we just talked about all this fancy kind of, um, you know, kind of macro sort of things. We haven't even talked about uh, uh, the yield curve inverting, right? So we see that 210 spread at 25 basis points. And the last two times we saw it invert, we did see, and this is important, now, a lot of people will say, well, the yield curve inversion, usually kind of, you, you see a recession after, forget recession. I, I don't really care about like a recession. You know what I mean? Because you know what? We actually worked our way out of a recession in early 2020 by throwing $4 trillion at it over the 25% next year and a half. GDP. Right. So, so my Shucks. point is, but well, what are we here to do? We're here to talk about the stock market and the risk assets and the stuff that you own. And make no mistake about it, both times that the yield curve inverted, okay, in 2006, we did see in 2007 a market top. We saw the S&P 500 get cut in half. And then the next time in 2019, we saw, again, black swan event, pandemic. No one could have actually expected that, but the S&P 500 did go 35% lower. And my only point with the S&P right here, down 12, 13%, there's not enough damage there. If you think there's a bunch of weird stuff going on, and again, I hate to use that term weird, because the other day, you know, you kind of push back on me a little bit about well, it but it's damn when you say weird but my point is things, is like think, there's a right. lot of stuff going on that a lot of people who know a lot about markets and a lot about economics cannot put their finger on and i just say the s&p down 12 percent does not really take that all into account yeah 50 percent of nasdaq stocks are down 50 percent or more but not apple guy <laughs> apple's far from it we mentioned this yesterday chris verone brought it up that apple he thinks should fall before we're we're done yeah. with this damage to the markets and, you know, you're gonna, people obviously hate when you sort of say anything negative about Apple. I get it. And, you know, when Apple, it, it seems like each month it makes a new all-time high. But it has had meaningful sell-offs over the last five years. And the only thing I think is important to point out, Dan talks about this all the time, wonderful company. When Apple was a growth stock six or seven years ago, it was trading at a value stock valuation. It was trading at 12 and a half times forward earnings. Now that it is a value stock, I think by any stretch we can agree, given their earnings growth and their revenue growth, it's trading at a growth stock valuation, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, I think the S&P 500 is, is come in around 18 and a half times ish it's trading at now, which is probably historically about right, maybe a little bit rich. You're talking about Apple, it's still probably close to 27 times next year's numbers. That's expensive in this environment. That's just factual. So you can come at me on Twitter with all the Apple hate, but it means factual, facts are facts, and that's what we're looking at right now. All right. We'll have much more on Apple in the event today later on in the show. Meantime, crude ending the session up another 4% today. WTI now up more than 20% in the last week. Let's bring in Paul Sankey of Sankey Research to talk about the potential blow-up. Um, Paul, great to have you with us. How, the ban on oil, it was, it was telegraphed. Most people expected it. It seems also largely... Um, 
you know, sort of just ceremonial um, to the extent that it doesn't immediately come off the market. So how much more will oil go up, do you think? You know, I, I think we're maxing out here. I really do. You're getting into a situation where you're going to get shortages in Europe. And above all, as you mentioned, from today's Ukraine not seeking membership of NATO story, what we're also hearing out of Washington and other sources is that the, the uh, FSB, the the Soviet, the, uh, the former KGB, now Russian intelligence, is actually some of it is working against Putin. So this uh, this is turning into an absolute military disaster, as you can see from the reports of some of the commanders that are being killed. That's the basis for why people think uh, Putin's intelligence is working against him now, because they're just taking too many losses of too many senior leaders. And we think that uh, they're actually suing for peace here. So we're looking for a, a solution here. Hopefully, fingers crossed, we may get one. And you saw uh, the Ukraine story. Later, you saw Putin come back and say, I'm banning all exports of commodities. Uh, but I think that was part of his negotiating position. So I think you're potentially maxing out here. Now, I'm very nervous to say that because last time I was on, I said, hey, we could short oil here. I didn't yeah. think Putin would invade. But, um, you know, obviously, you know, that was a quick cover on that one, because as soon as he went in, we were clearly going to go a lot higher. But so for, once the, I'm prepared, uh-huh. for once, I'm prepared to say short oil, uh, long tech here. It'd be the first time in two and a half years I've said that. <laughs> Um, but, you know, I, I don't think we can go a lot higher simply because we're maxing out in, things, in terms of things like how much tighter Europe can get. So you're completely reversing. Um, what is the Russian-Ukrainian... Well, trading call, definitely. Yeah, yeah, trading call. What is the Russian-Ukrainian uh, premium in oil right now? Well, that's one of the interesting things because everything on an underlying basis was so tight, right? So we actually, I mean, we got to 100 pretty much on, based on fundamentals. So you can say that the, the last $30 was all the risk, yeah. Paul, it's Tim. Thanks for joining us. Uh, last time we had this spike in 2008, Georgia had invaded uh, Ukraine. Sorry, Russia had invaded Georgia. Uh, you had crack spreads, which were starting to compress. You had nat gas inventories, which were actually a, a lot higher. We have dynamics that, to me, say we could go higher. And oil and, and energy as a percentage in the S&P was about 16 percent. So we're at an all-time high when this happened. We're at 4 percent now. Doesn't this all lead to higher oil prices? I think I'll, on an underlying basis, we've clearly added risk to oil. And there's a couple of very bullish things out there. The first is that we have very low unemployment in the U.S. and really crazy oil demand numbers. The second, I'm sure you saw in the past day or so, China raised its GDP target for this year to 5.5%. Mm-hmm. That's enormously bullish for oil demand. So obviously, what we've all been looking for is where's the break point of demand? And we've busted in Europe. It's done. I mean, you've got people appealing to 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 smear the curve or whatever we call it, flatten the curve by using less oil. You know, that's how bad it is in Europe. Seven, eight hundred dollars a barrel of oil equivalent for European gas. So I think you're maxed out on Europe and that's just a damage situation. But I'm hopeful that we can get peace. In that case, you know, we go back to what's happening on an underlying basis. And I'm still pretty bullish about the U.S. Uh, and certainly with the Chinese party conference coming up, I think if they want five and a half percent growth this year, GDP, they're going to go for it. So I think this, it's, it's really fascinating. Uh, last time, if you remember, we got to about 120 in 08, and uh, the Saudis said, this is too high, we're going to bring it down. We did a, a sort of extra $10 of, of upside from fundamentals, and then a $20 speculative spike to 150, and then we were cooked, and the next stop was actually 27. So I'm not saying we're going that low, because I don't think there's so much liquidity in the world. 
But I do think we're maxing out here in the 130 to 150 range. I don't think we can go a whole lot higher personally. And one of the things I said was the top today was people talking about $300 oil. You just can't do it. It's financially impossible, you know, et cetera, et cetera. All right. Um, Paul, before we let you go, you've been, you've been at this in terms of covering the oil industry for decades. Um, I, I think that's right. 30 years. Okay. So it is decades, plural. Um, in, in Gulf War. Actually, Gulf War One is when I started. Times of, of this extreme volatility. I mean, oil is up, what, 7% this week, 26% last week. What happens yeah. to funds out there. I mean, we've been talking sort of here, and I'm wondering if you're hearing anything about commodity funds broadly, whether it be oil or, or funds that also trade things like wheat, et cetera, uh, being on the wrong side. I mean, who would have predicted this sort of volatility? Yeah, I know. It's a disaster. And, you know, one of the things people have been saying, for example, about Chevron is, is this thing moving because it's a pretty obvious major short that, you know, potentially getting blown up? Because if you look at the Chevron chart, especially with Chevron's exposure to Kazakhstan, it kind of doesn't make any sense. Uh, you know, I can understand things like Halliburton and, and service companies ripping off a low base, but Chevron's already at a record high, and then it went parabolic. So, yeah, there's, and as you know, the nickel story, you know, has, has actually had the whole London Metal Exchange suspended. I mean, they stopped trading, which is how yeah. crazy it is. So, yeah, it, it is a time when we're expecting to see blow-ups, um, you know, pretty much in everything in commodities, and so, someone somewhere is hurting. There's, there's a huge amount of pain out there. There's no question. Paul, thank you. Good to see you. Paul Sankey, thank you, Research. Um, Paul mentioned some of the other commodities on the move. Gold prices, they settled their third highest close ever. As Paul had mentioned, LME suspended nickel futures trading for the first time ever today. Wheat rising again after six straight days of limit up. It was actually limit down in today's session. Guy, um, you know, in, in, at one time you, you traded gold. <laughs> this is extreme in terms of commodities. Mm-hmm. Well, for gold, it's not. But for commodities, absolutely. Right. And, and if, if for somebody to say they've seen this before, nobody's seen, especially in nickel. You know, Tim talks about standard deviation moves in the market from time to time, two, three standard deviation moves in our world. You know, that's big news. I mean, nickel had a 30 standard deviation move, things that, again, nobody's ever seen before to the extent that they had to shut it down. Now, we started, you know, you asked Karen what's wrong with the banks, and she gave a great answer. I think some of the things that might be going on, don't underestimate their exposure to potentially sovereigns that could potentially be blowing up in the commodity world, hedge funds, all kinds of different things. I mean, that's out there. That's the next headline to come that such and such blew up in the, in the base metals world because it's happening before our eyes, but it speaks to everything that Paul talks about. By the way, he's probably spot on in terms of crude here. I mean, if you're, it's not a bad level, especially in the OIH, which has been ripping to take some money off the table. Karen, what's your take on, on oil here? I mean, Paul has tried to go out there and make calls in terms of where it tops out, but he sees more risk to the uh, downside than the upside at this point. Well, I didn't want to, you know, after you goodbye the guest, I didn't want to bring him back, but I really would <laughs> like to ask him that same question. If peace breaks out tomorrow, where does oil go? And, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if oil was down $25 on a very, you know, on a very bullish sort of peace announcement at least. And then from there, probably lower. But, you know, I would just one thing I looked at today was Glencore. Do you remember we talked about Glencore in the mm-hmm. sort of crash of commodities? And I got to think this environment is just fantastic for them. If they cannot the get block. stuck and just be trading. And What? 
I was just going to say, yeah, sorry, you can't, you can't see me. I'm talking over you. Apologies, Karen. But they're the fourth largest mm -hmm. nickel producer in the world behind Norilsk uh, and BHP and Bali. And, and so Glencore is, is your canary on commodity volatility all the time to me, up and down, and it's been ripping. All right. Well, speaking of energy and commodities, be sure to catch our special CNBC program tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern, Oil Shock, hosted by our own Brian Sullivan, featuring the CEOs of Occidental, Pioneer, and Williams Companies. That is tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, Dollar Tree having its best day ever. So it's boosting one of Guy Dami's favorite stocks. It is the reading glasses, maybe, the spices, the greeting cards, stale candy. Um, we'll get guys' takes right ahead. And later, Apple's big day, what their new products and baseball mean for the stock. The details coming up. Stick around. Much more Fast Money straight ahead. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. The retail space holding on to gains in today's session. The XRT retail ETF popping 2 plus percent. Check out some of these comeback stocks. TJX. Under Armour, Ross stores more, all higher after hitting 52-week lows earlier in the day. Karen, what do you make of the strength in this uh, area? I'm a little bit surprised, actually. I mean, TJX, maybe you can, although TJX, you have to actually go to a store. So that's, uh, they don't have much of an online business. So that's, I'm a little bit surprised. And I'm actually, you know, I'm looking at luxury as well as some of the lower end ones. And Luxury, although people you know, can still afford it, a name like Louis Vuitton is down 25% since the beginning of February on really probably just people feeling their portfolios are a lot lower and not feeling as wealthy as they were. And so I gotta think that goes all the way down to from the highest end customer to the lowest end customer. And if they drive to the mall, I think it's, I think it's bad. They're cheap, they should be cheap. The ones with great balance sheets, they'll be fine. Yeah. It would make sense that the mall stocks could feel the pain first, Tim, although Macy's was up 8 percent. Yeah, I, look, I think there's been a fair amount of pull forward. I think there's been a fair amount of, of restructuring dynamic priced into a lot of these mall stocks that, that frankly, went into COVID in bad shape and got worse before the, the backdrop really changed for them. I, I do think that there's a case where for all this uh, you know, consumption destruction that we're seeing out of inflation, there are brands like a Lulu and a Nike that I, I think have a lot of pent up still to go. I think the, the tailwinds in athleisure, I think the tailwinds in innovation in this kind of sportswear are there. I think Nike at 30 times is something uh, you know, you've been wanting to see. Uh, same thing with Lulu. Those, those are the top two names on my list. Nike's gone from 175 down to 120. Um, and I think you priced in a lot of downgrades that have come with Nike in the last month. It's amazing when you're on Twitter, and we're all on Twitter, so we see this all the time. People are constantly tweeting pictures of their gas prices that they are yeah. encountering these days. $4, $5. Um, 
Shouldn't it catch up at some point, Dan? I mean, even if at the gas station level, you're not going into the convenience store to buy the soda or the pack of cigarettes, no. it catches up. Yeah, I, I guess it depends where, where we're talking about on the, on the consumer spectrum. And I think that, you know, we made this point last night is that like consumer balance sheets are supposedly in very good shape, right? Consumer savings are at like mm-hmm. record highs, that sort of thing. So, you know, like the whole idea that we could kind of withstand a sort of price shock in oil for a time being after $4 trillion were just kind of thrown at the pandemic from both monetary and fiscal makes some sense to me. So I don't think there's any reason to kind of, you know, like I'd be more concerned about a McDonald's shutting down, let's say, in Russia, having close to 10 percent of their sales offline for a time period than I would about gold. Listen, the price of oil here in America will be transitory because it's a big political issue in a very big political year. We're going to figure out how to get that price lower. All right. Um, let's stick with the retail space. Dollar Tree topping the tape today. Shares are up more than 4 percent. I got that wrong before. It wasn't the biggest percent gain ever. It was only 4 percent, but it's still 4 yeah, percent. The retailer reached an agreement with Activision Investor Mantle Ridge to rework its board. Guy, you like this name. There are a number of things that could be working in its favor between the activists and, and also just the notion that could Consumers may be looking to save a buck or two. Stars are lining up, and we talked about it a while back when that activist got involved. I think the stock was probably at a 90 handle or so. We talked about Dollar Gen as well, which hasn't performed nearly as well. But I think that's a stock that you can take a look at. Look, Dollar Tree reported, I think, on March 2nd. Okay report. A lot of analysts liked it a lot, though. I mean, I think the average price that I saw on the street is about 165. I think the high is 180. So there's still room here to the upside, especially when you have activists involved. Karen can speak to that. But the one that I think might be hidden gem here is Dollar Gen. Oddly enough, that had a huge move a few months ago, sold off with everything else. I think that's probably poised to take the next leg higher. All right. We are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Solar surge, the oil spike sparking a move higher in clean energy. How should you position yourself to profit? That play ahead. Plus, Apple's unveiling brand new products. What are they? And is it enough to launch the stock higher? One top tech watcher joins us next to break it all down. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out some of the key highlights from today's Apple event. Tim Cook announcing a new budget iPhone, a new iPad Air, a brand new Mac featuring Apple's M1 Ultra chip, and a host of new colors for the iPhone 13. But the big event failed to woo investors. Apple finishing more than 1% lower. It's fourth straight down day. For more, let's bring in Loop Ventures partner Gene Munster. Um, Gene, 
I don't know, it didn't seem that exciting, any of these things. It seemed kind of iterative. I mean, the, the chip is a kind of exciting. But other than that, what's the big deal here? Well, Melissa, just to put it into perspective, it may be constructive, is today we're talking about 5 to 10 percent of Apple's businesses being upgraded. That compares to their fall event where 50 percent of the business gets upgraded. So by definition, this is going to be a smaller number of the products. And I think if we look at the products across the board, the iPhone SE, it is iterative. It's a small upgrade, uh, but it is a price increase. I think that is a critical piece here that's getting missed by a lot of investors. For them to actually raise price on their entry-level product, I think it sets the tone for what their product demand is. And it's still really hard to get a hold of Apple products ultimately. So I think that's one of the, going to be one of the big drivers here going forward is what the supply availability of these products are. And I think another piece that gets lost is they keep delivering despite all these headwinds. They keep coming out with these great products despite the fact that they've been working remote, supply chain issues. And I think that that is probably the most important takeaway here is that ultimately they continue to be the gold standard when it comes to putting great products out. And I think, uh, again, you're right, 5 to 10% of the revenue doesn't catch investors' attention, but I think it's important that they just step back and collectively look at uh, the body of work that Apple continues to put out. Hey, Gene, it's Karen. Thanks so much for being on today. I ask you this all the time. What's your price target? I believe it's 250 but how do you get there between services, hardware, and wearables? How do you break that down? It is 250 It seems like a, a stretch case here, but I want to kind of anchor back that if you assume a 32 multiple on what I think that they're going to earn next year, call it 720 you get to that 250 Their current multiple is about 25x. I think to go and campaign for a higher tech multiple in this environment seems like I am out of touch. But I do uh, believe that if we fast forward 3, 6, uh, 12 months from now, assuming we do get through many of these headaches, I think that we will see multiple expansion. And I think what it all keeps coming back to, Karen, is that that 250 number is really predicated on what we're seeing today, is Apple's ability to continue to uh, put out great products. If they do that, upgrade existing products, come out with new products, and enter new product categories, I feel that this is going to continue to surprise investors on the upside, uh, not only with earnings, but also multiple expansion. Gene, they announced Major League Baseball. At some point, there will be baseball. I think we all can agree on that. But the holy grail here is uh, National Football League. Does that get them closer to the NFL? It does. And just to put some perspective around this, is it is the holy grail NFL. Major League Baseball is about comparable in terms of advertising revenue versus the NBA. And when you think about the opportunity with the NFL, I think that that's definitely on the, the table here. And I would uh, put it this way. There's a high probability, I would say, greater than 75% in the next one to two years, we're going to see a deal with Apple. And it's, it's this simple, is that content continues to be king. Apple is going to spend about $10 billion in content this year, Amazon about 15 Netflix about 20 And I think that the biggest opportunity for them really to uh, continue to activate a base of paying subs is through the NFL. And I'll put a little teaser on there, too. I don't think they're going to stop at the NFL two to three years from now. I think that they're going to do Formula One. It's a sport that I don't watch, but a lot of people do. And it's uh, another example, I think, of how Apple can continue to expand beyond baseball, football, and other sports. Gene, great to see you. Thank you.
Thank you. Gene Munster, Loop Ventures. Um, let's trade. This guy had mentioned the valuation before and whether Apple deserves this sort of premium. We've brought this up before, whether mm-hmm. Apple should be priced where it is relative to the S&P 500, given its projected growth for the next year. But Gene makes a very good point, and I want to underscore it, that, that the product announcements that they, they came out with today may actually prove that they're on top of supply chain. They are still able to come out with this despite what is roiling a lot of other tech companies out there, Dan. Well, or are they raising prices on their low-end products that are supposed to kind of, you know, be for a larger, um, you know, any pool of, of consumers because they have to deal with the supply chain issues. I mean, yeah, that, might, just, that might be, yeah. listen, they're supposed to have a 43% gross margin. At least that's what they have basically guided to, and that's what consensus is for this year. That would be the highest gross margin this company has had in a decade. So here's the thing. I'm going to throw out a number, 10%. Okay, 10%. If the stock goes down 10% to 140, and you think about the way PE multiples have contracted in the S&P 500, Mm -hmm. and this stock is supposed to have the same expected earnings growth in this fiscal year as the S&P 500, that's when you get this stock super cheap. That's when you basically say to yourself, you're not going to get to this price target, 250, anytime soon, but that's where the value territory is. That's where you're going to get the growth of the services and all that higher margin stuff at a good value. And that's my only point about this stock right here and right Right now, we dedicated a whole A block to it last week. Yep. Let it come to you. It has to come to you before this market is done going down. Apple has to participate. All the other stuff, iterative, great. They're going to financial engineer. They bought $20 billion of stock back last quarter. They're going to continue to do that. They probably get more aggressive if the stock's down 142 and accelerated buybacks. But you need to have it come to you a little bit. Yeah. Seems, like, seems like the A block the other night. So, oh, so no, but no, but <laughs> you're right. And, and I think that's probably around 140 is at least an important level on the stock. I t- tweeted out today, and I understand the, the venom that guys sometimes feel comes his way when he talks about Apple. I just said, you know, the, the cracks in the foundation are, are happening, and, and people don't want to hear it, but it's it's making lower lows. And and, and outside of that Gen 24 low, uh, looks like we're going to break below the 200, maybe not. Um, I do think that the uh, hardware-as-a-service dynamic of Apple is something that we've now kind of assumed. We all know that basically we are going to continue to trade in this phone. We are going to continue to uh, be part of a cycle where services are a bigger component, and that's why it's holding this multiple. I, I just think that if you look back at the consumption of, of MacBooks, wearables, uh, and clearly iPhones in a refresh cycle over the last 18 months, it never gets better than this. Karen, just quickly, at what point does a premium to the S&P 500, Apple's premium, concern you? Hmm. Oh, it's probably getting close right now. But I do think, though, that this, I think Dan brought it, it's, it's a, a beta of not much higher than one. So I feel like what the market does, as the market goes so goes Apple. And so if we get a bounce, then I think Apple will bounce. If not, I think it will drift in. I am long. I'm not going to trade around it. But I think down is more likely than up. All right. Coming up, two major restaurants halting operations in Russia. What this means for them and the rest of big business, that debate straight ahead. And later, check out the move in some of these seller stocks. Should you buy these names to energize your portfolio? Much more Fast Money in two. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money Podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this.
Welcome back to Fast Money. An update on a story our Kate Rogers brought us last night. McDonald's announcing it is temporarily closing 850 restaurants in Russia in response to the Ukraine invasion. The move hugely symbolic as the, re- as the opening of the first outpost in Moscow in 1990 was seen as a major sign of the end of the Soviet era. Other consumer goods companies, Starbucks, Pepsi, Coca-Cola, also suspending their operations in the country. Tim, you li- lived in Russia. You're just telling us a story about, about your first meal in Russia. My first meal, I uh, went over for a job interview. They walked me over to the McDonald's at, at Tverskaya, right down by Red Square, and I got a hamburger I really needed badly. In fact, if it was for McDonald's, I probably would have lost 10 pounds in my first six months out there that I, didn't ha- I couldn't afford to lose. The busiest McDonald's in the world is, is in Pushkinskaya, which is near that one. But it, the, the business that they have, uh, the, and, and let's face it, for Yum and, and some of the other big fast food companies, Emerging markets are the places where they're getting growth. But for McDonald's, Steve Leesman did a great job, who also spent uh, more time over there than I did. And and it really was symbolic. It really was seen as a sign of globalization uh, and Western influence in a positive sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously different times today. You know, we're talking more and more um, with this invasion, but, but you know, in, in recent years of the reverse and reversing some of the globalization that has taken place over the past decade or so. So, Guy, when you take a look at companies, multinationals with heavy presences in, overseas, in, in other countries, I mean, you bring up the geopolitical potential risk from a, a China sort of flare-up with Taiwan. Think of how many U.S. companies are dependent on China for growth. And listen, again, it's important to say we're obviously not rooting for this. None of us are. But we need to point this out because this is potentially market moving. And these companies have set this precedent now with Russia, rightly so, by the way. I I would not argue against that. But God forbid something similar would happen in, you know, again, China, Taiwan. It almost forces their hand to act in kind. And then you think about what does that mean, again, for McDonald's? What does it mean? For Apple, um, you have to take those things into consideration. As a matter of fact, last time Gene was on and we were talking about Apple, we had that conversation with him. That is what we call in the business, I think, a tail risk, and it's out there, and I think you'd have to have it on your radar screen. All right, coming up, solar stocks heating up. Will the rally continue in these red-hot names? We've got the trade next, and a quick programming note. You won't want to miss a new primetime series, No Retreat, Business Boot Camp, premiering tonight, 10 p.m. Eastern Time. That is right here on CNBC. Welcome back to Fast Money. Solar stocks surging in today's session as the spike in oil prices turns the market's focus toward alternative energy. Invesco's TAN solar ETF up more than 9% today, led by gains in First Solar, Sunrun, Enphase Energy, and others. For more, we're joined by James West, Senior Managing Director at Evercore ISI, covering clean energy and the oil and gas complex. James, great to have you with us. Um, let's, say, let's say for whatever reason, ceasefire reasons, whatever, you name it, oil goes down. Um, to, you know, 90 bucks a barrel. What happens to this solar enthusiasm? Does it just disappear as well? I don't think so. I think uh, energy security is now top of mind. And so the transition to more renewables, particularly in Europe, but also in the U.S., I think is going to continue full steam ahead. I don't think this is going to change anything if oil goes back down. Right now it is, you know, having some impact. It's making energy security top of mind rather than kind of climate crisis. 
it can it really be viewed as energy security in, in terms of the, the transition? Because what we've seen for the past decade or so, since in the 2010s in particular, alternative energy has really come down in price. But recently, the prices have actually gone up a little bit because of various supply chain issues, getting parts because of tariffs, et cetera. Um, and I'm wondering what your take is on, on whether or not we could truly be uh, energy independent by using some of these sources when we've seen that globalization has caused snarls in, in this. Well, certainly energy independence is, is probably not uh, something that's going to happen here. We're going to need to use everything, including oil and gas. But I think the move to renewables will be accelerated by the move towards energy storage. So energy storage is taking away the intermittency issues that you find with wind and solar. And while costs have gone back up, costs for natural gas and costs for oil have gone up much more significantly. So in terms of the U.S. benefiting here, James, I mean, there's probably a different cross currents, not just energy independence, but also just a general push towards greener forms of energy. Which names do you sure. like? And are there others who were better poised overseas for Europe's push towards alternatives? Sure, I think the U.S. names Enphase has a great European business that they're building out and growing. I think Sunrun, which is more U.S. focused, but Again, energy security top of mind uh, for Americans uh, as well. And then I think the one that kind of pulls it all together with the storage is Fluence Energy. Hey, it's, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. Where do you think nuclear fits in? And if you think there's a place for it, how would you play that? So there's absolutely a place for nuclear in the energy future, and it should be part of the energy future. So I think uh, the people that have campaigned against nuclear for some 50 years are somewhat wrongheaded. I think that Nuclear, you probably play it through uranium right now, but there will be nuclear energy companies, uh, some of these smaller nuclear energy companies going public in future years, which will be investments. But right now, it's probably through uranium. James, great to get your thoughts. Thank you. Okay, thank you. James West, Evercore ISI. Um, Tim, where do you, see, you were once upon a time in solar names. Yeah, now you're a big uranium guy. Yeah, I, look, I think nuclear is the trade, and I think this is a combination. Of, I mean, look at Germany's energy policy, and, and we talked about how they, they need to actually extend the life, and they will be extending the life of these reactors they're about to close down. I, I think you've got a case where uh, a lot of the mining dynamics are, are really accelerating. I think a lot of the, uh, the, the storage and the facilitation are things that are very interesting. Look, solar is, you know, it's a it's a fascinating area. Part of the problem has been the cost and the margin and companies that um, have been had too long of a cycle in terms of, of both production and some of the demand side. But um, I, look, I, I think if you look at the energy space and nat gas and LNG, which the U.S. has a lot to export, there are a number of companies, even a Chenier, that I think still have a ways to go here. Yeah, Guy? Enphase, you know, he mentioned that. It's a $282 stock around Thanksgiving, got more than cut in half and is bounced. So I think that's the name you can look at. That's the largest holding in the TAN ETF at about 11%. But if you're trying to pull out individual names, I think that one looks the most interesting. And here's the good news. Elon Musk agrees with all of you. He tweeted it the other day that Europe needs to restart dormant nuclear reactors and increase the output. And he said, hopefully it's obvious to all of us. It is obvious to the fast money crew here, I guess. All right. Coming up, CrowdStrike down. One options trader thinks this cloud stock is not out. As we had to break, take a look at some of the stocks making moves in the after-hour session. Stitch Fix and Bumble moving in opposite directions after their earnings reports. And XPO soaring on news it is going to spin off its non-trucking business. Fast Money's back in two.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Take a look at CrowdStrike taking a big hit in today's session. The cybersecurity stock reports earnings after the bell tomorrow. Option traders are positioning themselves for yet another big move once the results cross the wire. Mike Coe's got the action. Mike. Yeah, so CrowdStrike traded about 1.6 times its average daily options volume today. Right this market is implying a move of about 20 bucks higher or lower by the end of the week. That's 12.5% or so of the current stock price and considerably more than the 8.3% or so that it's averaged over the last eight quarters, even more than the last four quarters, which was really closer to 3%. One of the trades we saw was a purchase of the weekly 167 and a half, 180 call spread. The buyer paid $3.35 a contract for 500 of those, but not every trader was so sane. The third most active options were the weekly 50 puts, and that was largely the result of a fairly good-sized purchase of 800 of the 150, 130 put spreads as the stock weakened towards the close. So they were paying about five bucks for those put spreads. Either way, options traders anticipating a big move on this stock, trading more than 25 times anticipated one-year earnings. This is really really interesting, Guy, especially as it comes on the heels of the announcement that Google's buying Mandiant. Yeah. Guy. Did you say Tim or Guy? I'm sorry, Mel. I apologize. It is... It is No, it is interesting. And we actually talked about that with you and Sarah Ising on Closing Bell weeks ago, the potential for that company like that to get acquired. And here we are. I happen to think, and Tim, I think, may agree with me on this one. This stock has sold it off enough where I think you can play CrowdStrike from the long side into earnings. Now, I'm sure the fast fire is coming when I'm wrong, but I'll put it out there and say it. Simply, quickly, enterprise environment, great. The tailwind, 25% spend. I think the environment better than pre-Russia, Ukraine, and it's traded to back those levels. All right. Mike, thank you. Good to see you. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That is Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up next, you got your final trades. For the final trade, let's go around the horn. Karen Feinerman. Yeah, you know, crazy markets like this, I think, what's the last thing I'd want to sell? It's Goog. And what's the first thing I'd want to buy if I own nothing? Goog. So that's my final trade. G-O-O-G-L kind. A little bit cheaper than the other one. Guy Adami. Last evening, I was able to sit next to you and Tim Seymour, and we discussed Lithium Americas Corp. LAC. Had a Mm -hmm. decent day today. I think it's on the verge of a even bigger few days coming up, Mel. LAC. Tim Seymour. It was a warm environment last night. It's a warm environment tonight. Uh, and it's a good night to go home on Netflix, it, folks. I mean, I think with inflation out there, this may be the, the best inflation buster out there. And, and at 32 times trailing, this starts to get into some value territory. There are some sense the channel checks uh, on Q1 are actually significantly better for Netflix. Then Nathan. Yeah, guy, the lithium. I like it. It's not going to crack here. Um, I'd say that some of these uh, pharma stocks, the XLV, the ticker uh, of the ETF that tracks them, looks pretty attractive. All right. Thank you all for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Do not go anywhere. CNBC's special report on the oil shock starts right now. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey 
can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.